If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. I do want to say uh, welcome to all our middle school and high school students. This is Family Worship Sunday. And uh, we just love having our middle school and high school students here because they get to participate in the life of the church. And to also remember that you are in a family. You have your first family which you were born into, but you have a second family in which you are born anew into. And so we want to make sure that you understand how important you are to the church, that Christ has redeemed you ever bit as much as he's redeemed your parents and grandparents. And so glad you're here to worship the Lord and to hear his word preached. You know, um, this section of scripture is really significant. And uh, in order for us to really understand where Paul is going to take us, we have to remember where he has been. And so we're actually going to read chapter 2, verse 16, to remind us about the real heart of the book of Galatians and also the very heart of Christianity. What is the core or the center of the gospel? We find it in verse 16 of chapter 2. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump in, and we're going to go verse by verse through this next section. Father, we thank you that you have sent Jesus Christ to rescue us from our sins. We thank you that he has come, that he did everything which is necessary in order to secure a redemption, that those of us who will repent and believe in the gospel will be justified. And God, thank you that Jesus Christ, as he promised, sent the Holy Spirit so that those of us who repent and believe the gospel would have the Holy Spirit living in us. And the Holy Spirit applies all of the work of redemption to us. We are free from sin. We are free from condemnation. We now have the power to obey you. We have the power to put sin to death. And God, we, th we are thankful that Jesus is returning. And when he returns, he's going to set everything right. And everything's going to be made new again. Until then, God, help us to be obedient, help us to be faithful, help us to trust that you are good, that Jesus is sufficient, and that we have all that we need in the word of God. And so, God, teach us, I pray, illuminate the truth of the gospel, be with our minds and hearts to believe and to perceive and understand what we ought, and we'll give you thanks for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go verse by verse because the Apostle Paul actually works through chapter 3, verses 1 through 14 in a very systematic way. He's like one point after the next, and there's a pacing that Paul has, and so I'm going to follow Paul's pacing. I want to make sure that we're going through and giving time to think about what he's saying and going line by line. And so that's how we're going to do it uh, this morning, all right? So we start in verse 1, and if you remember what we just read in chapter 2, verse 16, Paul talks about justification. He talks about the fact that nobody is justified by works of the law. And I use the works of the law, I use the phrase called law works. Because in the original Greek, there's just two words, and it's just simpler that way. So what Paul does is he says there's two approaches to being saved. There's two approaches to justification. The first approach is law works. 
And the second approach is faith in Jesus. Now, remember what justification means. It means to be proclaimed innocent, to be acquitted, to be cleared of all charges. What it means in the biblical sense is you are declared righteous before God. And so imagine for a moment that God is a judge and you are on trial and you're standing before God. And the the reason why you stand before God is the question of should you be allowed into the presence of God? And so depending upon your righteousness, the answer is yes or no. When it comes to justification, it is the idea that God actually declares or proclaims that you are innocent when in fact you know and he knows that you have been you're guilty, that you have broken his law, that you have sinned. And so justification is this beautiful theological truth that God declares you righteous. God declares you innocent. God declares you to be admitted into his presence. And the Apostle Paul said, no one is declared righteous. Nobody is justified by law works. And the idea of law works is simply this. It's when you try to observe everything that God's law requires and you try to stand on your obedience or performance as the evidence or as the proof that you should be admitted into God's presence. And so what it looks like is you're standing before a holy God and he says, why should you be admitted into my presence? And then you wheel out all of the good things you've ever done. Here's why. Paul says nobody will be justified in that way. Why? Because everyone has broken God's law, and true justification demands perfect obedience in every imaginable way. And that's why he wrote, Paul wrote in chapter 3, verse 10, as we'll see today, in chapter 5, verse 3, that the law demands perfect obedience to everything, not just some things. But... If you pursue justification or you pursue salvation by means of law works, by trying to be saved through what you do, you won't be saved that way. For nobody is justified in that way. Instead, you are justified by faith in Jesus. So that's kind of the background. And that's where Paul's going to take us. And he's going to continue to teach us what this means in chapter 3. Now, remember, I'm going to go verse by verse. So that way we follow Paul's pacing. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Paul writes, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is not necessarily the, the most calculated way to, you know, uh, make friends and influence people is to right out the get-go tell people you're a fool. But Paul does that. And he talks about them being foolish because they have been bewitched. He says, who has bewitched you? The word bewitched means to come under a spell. It's like being under hypnosis. You know, know, in the cartoons and things like that, you have a little, like, clock, and you, like, tick, tock, tick, and then pretty soon you're watching it, and then your eyes start swirling. You know what I'm saying? You're under a spell. It's that kind of thing. Something happened before their eyes, and now they're under a spell. And so... Paul's saying, dude, I don't know what happened to you guys. I don't know who cast a spell on you. I don't know why you're in this state you are. But, man, it, it's like you guys are just, I don't know, you're just not paying attention. You don't see what's going on. And yet what Paul then says is it was before your eyes. And so he's going to contrast one thing that happens before your eyes, which is coming under a spell, with another thing that happened before their eyes. And this, he says... It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. 
Now the question is, were the Galatians, were they there when Jesus was crucified? Were they there when Jesus was hammered to a piece of wood and hung up for everyone to see? Were they there to hear his flesh tear? Were they there to actually see the blood splatter everywhere? And the answer is no, they weren't there. So in what way is Paul saying, before your eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? And the answer comes in that word publicly portrayed. It's a word that was used for marketing. It's something that you make public. And so you imagine for a second if you have a community bulletin board and you wanted to announce that something was coming up and you wanted to invite people to it or whatever, you would go to the community bulletin board. Like if you've ever been to Starbucks, you know that they have one of those and you post a little post on there. Or if you do it digitally, you have a little, uh, you go to Craigslist and you post an ad there. So you're publicly portraying that something is going on. Now, how did the Galatian church have Christ crucified publicly portrayed to them? And the answer is two ways. Number one, in the way in which Paul preached. Remember, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, he says, I, I don't know anything but Christ crucified. And so Paul constantly preached the message of the cross. He constantly preached the gospel. And so that's one way in which they had before their eyes Christ crucified. It was in their imagination. It was be, uh, before the eyes of their heart or before the eyes of their mind, that kind of thing. And then the second way is this, is the way in which Paul lived. Paul lived a crucified life. In other words, Paul was always others-focused, he was always sacrificial, and he was always thinking about how to serve other people. And that's what the theologians called cruciformity. You see, you want to be conformed to something, and the way Christians or what Christians are conformed to is the crucified Christ. And so we have cruciformity, that we should be following Christ in the way in which he sacrificially loved other people, put other people's needs before his own. Remember he said, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's called cruciformity. And so it's really, really significant that Paul lived this way because you remember Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so that reality is cruciformity, that we are being sacrificial, we're being others focused, we are trying to serve other people, and along the way, we suffer. That is the Christian way. Somebody's like, why would you ever want to be a Christian then? Yeah, that's the point. You have to count the cost, Jesus said. This is not just simply responding to like a Facebook friend request. You want to be friends with Jesus? Yeah, I guess so. It's a bid, come and die. Come and die. Now Paul is going to ask some rhetorical questions. You guys know what rhetorical questions are. They aren't questions that are necessarily seeking an answer, but they're questions that are causing you to go and think inwardly, causing you to have self-reflection. He's asking these questions to make sure that you are, are thinking through the things that he's talking about. And starting in verse 2, Paul's going to lay out a couple rhetorical questions. Verse 2, let me ask you only this. I love that phrase. Let me ask you only this question. And then he has like three. So he's like a true preacher, right? So I only have one more point. It's going to take 35 minutes, but you know how that works. 
So let me only ask you this question, Paul says. Did you receive the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, did you receive the Holy Spirit by law works or by hearing with faith? Now we know that this is two categories that he has. He has law works on one side and he has hearing with faith on another side. It's the same categories that he had in chapter 2, which is no one is justified by law works, but you are justified by faith in Jesus. So now what we know is hearing with faith is a phrase he's using to mean believing in Jesus, having faith in Jesus. Another way we could say it is by hearing the gospel and believing it. And so he asked the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit by law works, by obeying, by what you did, keeping the law? Or did you receive the Holy Spirit by hearing the gospel and believing it? Now, it's a rhetorical question, which means he doesn't necessarily want the answer because he already knows the answer. And he says, the word, did you receive, implies that they already did receive. He knows that the Galatian church has received the Holy Spirit. And now he's simply asking the question, okay, the Holy Spirit that you have, how did, it, how, how did you receive it? And, of course, his answer is, it's not by law works. You don't receive the Holy Spirit that way. You receive the Holy Spirit by hearing the gospel and believing it. If you don't believe me, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul, he writes this, In Jesus you also, now look at this, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Do you notice that? The Holy Spirit is the seal that comes when you hear the gospel and believe it. Verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the conclusion is this. The Galatians heard the gospel and they believed it, which resulted in them receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, this is significant because there's a lot of Christians out there that will tell you that you can receive the Holy Spirit in some other way than hearing the gospel and believing it. You can get the Holy Spirit by going to a rock concert. And then if the music is good enough, boom, the Spirit is going to fall. And if you have an anointed prof prophetical pastor, he can come over to you and, and no preaching of the gospel at all. Just look at you. And then lay hands on you, and then boom, Holy Spirit. But the reality is, the Apostle Paul says it's the preaching of the gospel, the hearing of the gospel, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. It's the hearing of the gospel and believing the gospel. That is the way in which you receive the Holy Spirit. Which means if there's no gospel, there's no Holy Spirit. I don't give a rip how good the music is. I don't give a rip how eloquent this pastor is. If there's no preaching of the gospel, namely that you are justified by faith in Jesus, there's no power there. And what's really interesting is I hear all the time about spirit power, power, power. And yet what's so interesting is then you look in Galatians or you look in Ephesians and you go, well, it seems as though the power that comes by way of the Spirit only comes to those who hear the gospel and believe it. Not through music, 
not through eloquent preaching and not through any other law works. I hate to say it, but you can't go to a class and learn how to get the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense, church? So therefore, if I want to preach with power, I preach the gospel. If we want the power to reside in our church, we sing about the gospel. If we want the power of God dwelling in and among us, then we pray according to the gospel. For the gospel itself in our praying, preaching, and all of our singing, that will be the way in which God continues to supply the spirit in which we will have all that we need for faith and godliness. So people... (laughs) Sometimes people ask, Phil, all you ever do is like just talk about the gospel. Gospel, blah, 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 blah. And I go, well, if you want powerless, entertaining preaching, you might need to go somewhere else. All right, verse 3. Next rhetorical question. Are you so foolish? That's not the question, but having begun by the Spirit, he writes, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So the question that he proposes here, rhetorical question, is about their future. It's about how they will continue to live. He asks the question, wait a minute, you, you begun by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one that gave you new life because you heard the gospel and you believed it. But now are you trying to live your life no longer according to the Spirit, no longer according to the gospel, hearing it with faith, but now you're trying to live your life under law works? Is that seriously happening? You know, this is significant for us because in many Christian circles, this is exactly the way that we teach spirituality. This is exactly how we teach people how to grow in their Christian life. You hear it often said like, okay, the gospel is for unbelievers. The gospel is the message of how you can be saved. And then once you get saved, what do we do? You just set the gospel to the side and now you graduate on to bigger and better things. And it's usually law works. Okay, now you better read your Bible or else. You better get to church or else. You better make sure you get baptized, you take communion, or else. Make sure you read this book. Make sure you go to this class. Make sure you do this and serve in this way. And what's really interesting is we just said, we just saw the Holy Spirit doesn't come by law works. And yet we're saying in the same, uh, we, we understand that the Holy Spirit does not come by law works. And yet at the same time, we're like, hey, you need to grow in Christ's likeness. Therefore, here's some law works. It makes no sense to me. That's why I keep trying to say every day, wake up. Every day, wake up. Preach the gospel to yourself. I'm a wretched sinner. I hated God. But God in his grace has sent Jesus to rescue me. And I now believe that he is totally sufficient to redeem me and restore me. I have the Holy Spirit living in me because of the gospel. And now I will live my life to his glory. Every day. And when people say, no, 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 you graduate from the gospel and you go on to deep stuff. <laughs> After all, Hebrews 5 says, you know, the solid, solid food is for the mature. Let's go to the deep stuff. And sometimes I'm going, you know what? Just because you learn how to float doesn't mean you need to be jumping off the high dive. Let's be careful here. Instead, remember the gospel, the gospel. We've got to stay close to the gospel. Now, the word the perfected here is the idea of sanctification. I use big words. Middle school students, you're probably like, oh, my gosh, I'm bored. 
High school students, you learn trigonometry and various other things. You can learn big words called sanctification. And parents, they can learn theology too. That's okay. So here's, here's how it goes. Justification is by faith. And then he says, are you trying to be perfected, which is sanctification. So what Paul's saying is you're justified by faith, but you're also sanctified by faith. Sanctified is the process in which you become more and more like Jesus. And sanctification is what is built upon justification. So first you're justified by faith in Jesus and you receive the Holy Spirit as a seal in order that you may become sanctified, that you grow in Christ's likeness. Now, the two are not separate in the sense that you can be justified over here and then you be sanctified over here. And there's like this wall that divides the two. That's not true. Justification is the foundation upon sanctification in which it's built upward. And so you can't divide the two. In fact, if you try to divide the two, you have neither. Instead, justification is the basis for your sanctification. And if justification is by faith, then sanctification is by faith. If justification is not by law works, then sanctification is not by law works. That's why Paul wrote, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. For the life I now live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith. I live by faith. I am sanctified by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Are you tracking with me now, church? So when, when you, you go to a like spiritual growth section in the bookstore or something like that, and you pick up your little book, and it's like, here are ten ways to grow in Christ-likeness. What I find so shocking is probably eight out of ten books don't even, don't even talk about the gospel. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my gosh. How in the world can you have a spiritual growth book that doesn't have the gospel in it when the gospel is the very thing you must hear with faith in order to receive the Spirit, and the Spirit's the one that conforms you into Christ's likeness? makes no sense to me. And yet we buy it, multi-billion dollar industry. Romans 8, 5. The Apostle Paul writes, it's two categories. Law works is the flesh. Faith in Jesus is of the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh, that is law works, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, they set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. In other words, to pursue sanctification by means of faith, that is what is life and peace. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, I love this phrase, but if by the Spirit, how do you get the Spirit? Hearing the gospel and believing it. So if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Discipleship is not teaching people how to manage their sin. That's law works. Discipleship is teaching people how to live in light of the gospel. So they have the power through the Holy Spirit not to manage their sin, but to put their sin to death. And if you're not putting sin to death by the Spirit, you have every incentive in the world to question whether or not you even have the Spirit. And so we as parents, we don't disciple our children according to law works. We disciple our children according to the Spirit. 
repent and believe the gospel, put to death sin. What conclusions do we draw? Verse 5, Paul asks this other question. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Hearing with faith, once again, believing the gospel. It's two categories. You have law works, hearing the gospel with faith. But the question is, of those two categories, what is the way in which God, do you notice the word is supplies, not supplied? You notice that, church? Does God who supplies, meaning an ongoing supply, continuing to provide? Does God who supplies the Spirit, does he do so by law works or by hearing the gospel with faith? It's a rhetorical question, so we know in every instance Paul's always been on this side of the category. Therefore, we can conclude God continues to supply us with the Holy Spirit through the means of the gospel being faithfully heard and believed. That's why I, I fundamentally don't understand why we would ever want to abandon the gospel in favor of something else. Because in abandoning the gospel, we are saying, I don't need the Holy Spirit. I don't need to put to death sin. I don't need to be empowered to obedience. I don't need new life. Well, if that is true, then Romans 8 is true. You will die. And so instead, the gospel, faithfully preached, faithfully prayed, faithfully sung, faithfully meditated upon, that is the way in which the Holy Spirit comes to us and the way in which God continues to supply the Holy Spirit to us. So now let me just simply say this. Why do I constantly refer to the gospel when I preach? Why are we constantly referring to the gospel in the songs we sing and the praise, praying we pray? Because I desperately want to be a church filled with the Spirit. Duh. <laughs> Verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain? Another question, if indeed it was in vain. In other words, when you become a Christian, it's hard. It's difficult. You will suffer. And he asked the question, if you're about to abandon the gospel, are you saying that you suffered all those things for Christ for no reason? Man, that's not good. And then all of a sudden, Paul makes this crazy turn. Looking at verse 6, he now introduces Abraham. And he begins to talk about what it means to be God's people. How do you get into God's people, entrance into the people of God? He's talking about justification by faith, sanctification by faith. Holy Spirit comes by faith. And then all of a sudden in verse 6, just as Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. You're kind of like, wait, what? Abraham? Since when are we talking about Abraham? But if you notice the first words is just as. What Paul is doing is he's indicating that the justification that happens by faith in us as Christians is the same thing that happened to Abraham thousands of years ago. Which tells us Abraham is justified by faith. Just like you and I are justified by faith. 
Now, why is Paul doing this? Why does all of a sudden he turn to Abraham? It's because people were claiming that because they were descended from Abraham, that that was their ticket into justification. They figured that their nationality, their ethnicity, and their law-keeping is what will qualify them to be justified. And now Paul's going, no. You don't get saved by race. You get saved by grace. So, verse 7. Here's how he unpacks this. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You see, the identity of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, is commonly referred to as Abraham's offspring. And so when Jesus was doing his ministry, and for instance, in John chapter 8, many of the religious leaders, they're like, we don't believe in you, Jesus, because father, uh, our father is Abraham. You see what they're saying? We don't need faith in Jesus. We got Abraham as our daddy. Or in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, where John the Baptist is baptizing people and telling them to repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And some of the people are sitting there kind of like, I don't need to repent. So John the Baptist tells them, do not say that Abraham is your father because God can create descendants of Abraham from these stones. In other words, many people believe that they didn't need to repent and believe in Jesus because they were descendants of Abraham and that was all that they needed. So the Apostle Paul cuts their legs out from underneath them. You think, you think your ticket to justification or heaven is because you're ethnically descended from Abraham? Yep. Don't you understand that the only reason that Abraham was saved was because of faith? Oh, oh, really? Yeah. He was saved by faith. And if he's the father of us as a people, then we should do as he does, which is live by faith. Uh-oh. That's why Paul writes this. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. A true descendant of Abraham is one who exercises faith in God. Verse 8. And the scripture, I don't have enough time to develop this, but this is beautiful. And the scripture, meaning the Old Testament, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Think about this for a second, brothers and sisters. Scripture, the Old Testament, it foresees and it preaches. How does a book foresee? Whoa, it must mean that this is more than just a book. There's something divine happening through this book that it can foresee. All right, that's, that's free. But anyways, move on. But if you go to the Old Testament, it, it actually foresees, it preaches. And what does it preach? It preaches the gospel to Abraham. Preach the gospel to Abraham? How's that work? Well, the gospel that was preached to Abraham is found in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. You don't have to turn there because we just have it for us in verse 8. In you shall all the nations be blessed. In other words, the Gentiles, that is non-Jews, the non-Jews will be blessed. That's the gospel. 
both Jew and Gentile will be blessed. Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, the, the real question is, what, what is the blessing? Well, I would suggest that the blessing is justification by faith. That's, that's the theme. Now, if we want to say, no, it's something more than that, then I would say there's something more important than being justified by faith. What possibly could there be more than salvation? What, what could be more important than salvation? I'm all ears. There's nothing. And so the blessing of Abraham is the blessing that all the Gentiles receive, which is justification, salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone. In you, Abraham, Gentiles will be justified by faith. And those who are of faith are justified by faith. Along with you, Abraham, this is significant because it means that no matter your ethnic heritage, no matter your racial identity, no amount of law works, those things don't justify you. So middle school, high school students, you must realize your parents' faith will not justify you. And parents, we must realize that when little Johnny prayed to receive Christ at four, but then lived their life for 40 years as a rebel, we must not ever think that that faith somehow justified them because sanctification is built upon justification. And you ought to be able to see a manifestation of the Spirit of God at work. And one of the manifestations is kill sin and live to righteousness. Many of us, I think, have tried to add something to justification by faith. Try to add something. Getting baptized, yeah, that'll work. That'll justify me. Taking communion, man, that's going to justify me. Reading the ESV, that's going to justify me. I mean, that's close. <laughs> no amount of law works, no amount of religion, no racial identity, no ethnic heritage, no borrowed faith, none of that will justify you. The only thing will justify you is hearing the gospel and believing it. Jesus Christ has come, God in the flesh, to live a sinless life that you couldn't live, to die upon a cross, taking it upon himself, the punishment for sins, dead and buried, rose from the dead on the third day, so that all who trust that his life and his death and his resurrection is sufficient for their justification, they will be saved. Jesus came to do a work, and the work Jesus came to do is finished. And the finished work of Jesus is fully sufficient. You either trust Jesus' sufficient final work, or you don't. And heaven and hell is the difference. Now, verses 10 through 14, we have to cruise through this pretty quickly. It comes in two parts, verses 10 through 12, bad news. Verses 13 and 14, good news. Make sure we see the sequence of that. 
because the, the gospel is always two-pronged. You know, you know, like when you barbecue, you always have that, that thing, you stab your tri-tip, and you flip it over. Two prongs. Whenever you're preaching a gospel sermon, whenever you hear a gospel being preached, two prongs. If it's only good news and never answers the question, what makes the good news good news? And the answer is because of the bad news, it's not the gospel. If it's only bad news, you never get to the good news, not gospel. It's like trying to flip over a tri-tip when you only have one long skewer. And you lift it up, what does it do? It just spins. Like, ah. Two prongs. First prong is this. Those who rely on law works are cursed. Middle school and high school students, if you try to live on your parents' faith, borrowed faith, you are cursed. You are under the wrath of God. Parents, if you try to assume that your kids are Christians because they went to church and they have an Awana vest, then you might not ever preach the gospel to them. And therefore, they may die and present their Awana vest to God and find out that they were only under God's curse. So we keep the gospel front and present, and the gospel begins with the bad news. If you rely on law works, you are cursed. You are under the wrath of God. Why is this true? Verse 10. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse because, firstly, it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The first reason why you are cursed if you try to live by law works is because you must be perfect in your obedience in order to be justified. Perfect. Perfect. Some people will say, yeah, but the God that I love, he's not legalistic. We can't put God in a box. <laughs> God came as a man, did he not? Yes, Jesus, my homeboy. Yes. That same Jesus, your homeboy, the Jesus who never judges, meek and mild Jesus, frolicking through the fields with his friends, with his long hair. <laughs> that hippie Jesus, he once said this, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of Pharisees, you will die. He said, what? If you're not perfectly holy and perfectly righteous, you are under the law, under a curse, the wrath of God. That's reason number one. Reason number two, verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So second reason you're under a curse if you live by law works is because the scriptures make it evident nobody is justified by law works. He said that in chapter 2, verse 16. He's saying it again. No one is justified by law works. Why? Because Habakkuk says the righteous shall live by faith. So if you try to live according to law works for your justification, you are under a curse because that's not how you get saved. Third reason, verse 12, the incompatibility of faith and law. But the law is not of faith, Paul writes. Rather, the one who does them, that is the law, shall live by them. In other words, pursuing justification by faith or justification by law works, they're incompatible. 
This is not peanut butter and jelly. This is oil and water. Now, the difference between Protestants and Catholics is this very point. Catholics would believe, yes, it's faith in Jesus plus your works. Duh. And we would say, no. For if it is justification by, by faith in Jesus alone, it, it excludes works. And if it's justification by faith in Jesus and works, then what we're saying is the justification that Jesus provides is only partially effective. It's not fully sufficient, just partially. And so you need to complete its deficiencies with your own effort. Now, either Jesus is fully sufficient or not sufficient at all. That's why chapter 2, verse 21 says, we do not nullify the grace of God. For if you can be justified by law works, then Christ died for no reason. And so if you think it's your faith plus works, your faith plus all this other stuff, you're under a curse because the two are incompatible. It's faith alone in Christ alone. That's justification. That's bad news. Let's get to the good news. I see red numbers up there, so I have to go fast. Verse 13, what do you do if you come to realize that you are under the wrath of God, you are under the curse of the law? Read verse 13. Jesus Christ redeemed us believers from the curse of the law. Jesus Christ has come to free us from the wrath of God. How? Because he became a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The way in which you are freed from the wrath of God is by realizing that Jesus Christ came to redeem us from the wrath of God, that he became a substitute for us. He substituted his own life for our life and his own death for our death so that his perfect life will be counted as our perfect life and his sin-absorbing wrath pouring out death on the cross is actually seen as our death. So that his keeping the law and his obedience and his keeping the law and taking upon himself the punishment we deserve, we now have this great exchange where we receive his righteousness and we are freed from the condemnation and the wrath of God. And so Jesus is our substitute. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So if you hear the gospel that Jesus Christ came to redeem you and to save you from the wrath of God, and you believe that by faith, you will be justified. The Holy Spirit will apply the works of redemption into your life so that you will have new life and you will be empowered to live the obedient life that God demands. You will be enabled to put to death sin in your life and you will be given the seal of the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of the inheritance that is awaiting you get heaven. Not if you pursue it by law works, but only if you pursue it by faith. Christ came to do that for you. And so therefore, your race, your ethnicity, your law works, your baptism, your taking communion, your Awana vest, your multitude of short-term missions trips, your Bible reading plan, your Thomas Kincaid paintings, your Christian t-shirts and bumper stickers, your church attendance, 
all of this will not justify you. Only faith in Jesus will justify you. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans 4. The words, it was counted to Abraham as righteousness, were not written for his sake alone, but they were written for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in Jesus, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's all for God's glory, and we receive the joy when we come to Jesus by faith and we stand in his grace. So, Father, as we take communion, I pray that you would remind us of its significance. For taking communion does not save us. It will not justify us. But taking into our hands the bread and the cup reminds us that Jesus became a curse for us. And in him becoming a curse for us, he will justify all who hear the gospel and believe it. And so, God, would you remind these things, remind us of these things, sow them into our hearts, I pray, for your glory and for our joy. Amen.